emergency podcast alert coming into your earbuds in your podcast feed, recording live from our respective homes, 1,167 miles apart from each other. Steven and Danny are here to talk about the newest book release in the Hunger Games tetralogy, if you will, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Danny, do you want to give the all-important spoiler warning, please? This is a huge spoiler. If you have not read the book, you probably shouldn't listen to this. Save it, come back to it later. There are spoilers. If you haven't read The Hunger Games and plan to, there may be spoilers. We don't know yet. So, warning, don't yell at us if you get something spoiled. Yeah, I mean, look, I think what we want to do here is, as as we've discussed at multiple points throughout the run of this podcast, you know, Danny and I both are passionate about other fandoms, if you will, uh, besides Harry Potter. Um, I think certainly for the both of us, the, the core of, of our passion for sci-fi is Harry Potter, but there are things we do outside of that as well, right? Uh, Danny does that whole Star Wars thing and the Lord of the Rings, I think, and stuff like that. Um, the Hunger Games for me is really, it's probably tied with Thrones in terms of being the other predominant like sci-fi fantasy like fictional passion in my life. Um, And so I I was as excited for the release of this book as I've been for any book, frankly, since the Cursed Child uh, manuscript came out. What was that, 2016? I know I was living, I know where I was living at the time, and it was right around that 2015, 2016 kind of timeline. Anywho, we all know how that turned out. Uh, shouts to all my cursed child is not canon heads out there, but we, we want to just dig in. Right. So I, I devoured the book overnight when I got it uh, earlier this week, Danny, we're recording here on Memorial day um, shouts to all of those, of course, who have served are serving or will serve our, our country. Um, seriously. Thank you all for what you do. Um, but yeah, Danny just got done reading it about 20 minutes ago. She texted me and said, I'm done. I literally text her back, fire up the pod, and here we are. So, um, Danny, do you want to start just by talking through whatever it is you're, you're feeling and thinking right now about the book? Okay. To start off, I want to also echo the excitement because I think when this was announced, we had never discussed The Hunger Games. When it was announced, we had like immediately texted and realized it was another one of those things. Um, but also on that... I have not read the books in quite some time. I don't know when the last reread you did of the Hunger Games books. I also haven't watched the movies in quite some time. So if I miss say anything, I'm just prefacing. I haven't reread them. I'm probably going to reread them coming up. I did set them aside for a future reread. Oh, and and on that note, while I certainly have reread and rewatched the movies and books semi like within the past year, I would say, I devoured this book again overnight uh, about three nights ago. And so between the fact that I read it, you know, while I should have been sleeping as well as the fact that it's been a couple of days, there are definitely some character names from this who I'm going to screw up and, and, and things like that. Um, so bear with us here is, is what we're trying to say. All right. And I think the preface again is that this book is a prequel that follows a young president or future President Snow. I'll give you a 10 house points if you can pronounce his first name. Can, can I read it? Sure. 
I'm going to go with Coriolanus, but I feel like that's probably wrong. I think that's pretty close. Look, let me say I don't know either. I think I probably would put the emphasis on that kind of that O-R-I-O, the first part, like Coriolanus. I really don't know either. I could be equally as wrong. Uh, listeners out there, feel free to shoot us a DM um, or you know tag us in your story with how you think Coriolanus, Coriolanus. It could be Coriolanus for all we know. <laughs> it really could be. I mean, he shortened um, his name. It, there may be a reason to why. Right, and like he's all into flowers and roses and roses pucker. Ain't it? I'm just saying. Look, it's there. Uh, let us <laughs> know. Adult content warning already. All right. Well, we knew we were going to get there. Anywho, uh, Danny, talk to us. Initial reactions. Um, for me, it was a slow start outside of general life happening because usually I would have devoured the book like Stephen. It was a slower start for me and took me a little bit. The book is separated into three sections. And it took me till almost the second to really get in enough that I didn't want to stop reading. Um, personal feelings. I don't necessarily need this book. Um, I do not have any emotional connection to the characters, which is a struggle for me because I want a character that I can connect with and I can't connect with him at all. And in general, I could do without it. Like I enjoyed reading it, but I didn't need it. Yeah. I mean, so, right, to, to, to reiterate, you know, the book takes place 64 years prior to the, the Katniss Everdeen Hunger Games story that we, that we know and arguably love. Uh, it takes place with Young Snow, um, which, like Young Sirius, is just a great name for a rapper, might I say. Um, what I, I agree. I don't know if I wanted or needed a story about about snow, like a backstory of, of sea snow. Right. Um, I wasn't necessarily one of those people. Like I know when the, you know, the summary plot for this book came out, I know a lot of people were up in arms about why would you write about snow during this time we're in, blah, 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 blah. There was a lot of controversy out there about this selection, about Suzanne Collins, selection of, of this plot line. Right. I wasn't there like that author's going to write what an author's going to write. It's my job as a fan to, to read it and then feel free to critique, criticize, whatever. Um, what I found myself really thinking about a lot, and just in, in terms of Suzanne Collins is she's not someone who is, is like a, a, a like a dialogue. I don't know if genius is the right word. She's, what Suzanne Collins excels at is, is setting a scene and really kind of the landscape of, of writing. Right. So when you think to the original hunger Games trilogy, it's the arenas, right? It's, it's the seam at district 12. And I think when you talk about this book, I think some of her best writing comes not in the, the, the politicking of young snow or any of that, but it comes when, you know, spoiler alert for the very back end when Snow's a peacekeeper and he goes into District 12 and he's in the seam, right? And you get him at the hob and like, that's when it feels the most visceral and real to me. And that's when it's the best writing. It's not the dialogue that he has with Lucy Gray, not the dialogue that he has with any number of the mentors whose names I'm going to forget. So I'm not even going to try, right? 
it's it, it's it's when she's able to evoke the imagery that I think she does best. Yeah, I think with that, like the one of the most vivid scenes going back to the Hunger Games books initial trilogy is the scene with Rue. Like there aren't a lot of words; it's all very much everything that's going on in the scene being made, it isn't in the dialogue. And I think that's a perfect like example of what you're saying. Yeah. So let's, so like Danny said, the book's broken up into three parts, similar to how, you know, the trilogy was, each book was broken up. So part one is the mentor. Part two is the prize. Part three is the peacekeeper. Let's try to the extent that we can and go part by part here and just whatever, you know, I, look, if you know me, you know I'm certainly not one to have a study guide. Danny certainly is, but again, she finished the book 20 minutes ago, so I don't expect her to have one yet. Um, but let's just try to, you know, stream a conscious here, go part by part, and just get some reaction. So starting with part one, The Mentor, this is where we, when we start, we learn a lot about young Snow and his family and his background. And so... You know, we learned that, you know, young Corio, I'm going to go with Corio because that's what they say in the book, right? I, I'm, I'm cool with using that for the rest of this pod, right? Corio comes from a fam- an elite family, um, one of the, you know, more wealthy, respected, powerful families in the capital. Um, but thanks to the rebellion, um, that's not the case. Um, it's, all a, it's all a big shell. It's all a big facade, right? Uh, he, his grandmother, grandmam, I believe, and, um, hello, welcome to the plot, Tigris, um, Tigris, I don't know, the same one that you get for a hot second, uh, who's the tailor in the last Hunger Games movie in the book, and they, and they house Katniss. Anywho, um, that kind of felt like a McGonagall retcon, if you ask me, it was like, oh, like, let's throw this character in there in the past, because, like, it's a character people recognize, but anywho, we learn that the... Snow has fallen on hard times, right? Um, he, he's this—he's this student and, and kid from an elite family. He's an orphan. Um, clearly, setting the scene for like someone who might be part of the ruling class, but someone who has this drive every day to prove himself. You also have to add in that, like, he's hiding from the world that they do not have the funds or the money to continue to live that lifestyle. So it's been a ruse this whole entire time to keep up that lifestyle. Yeah, and, and one thing that I do like that Collins establishes early on here, again, I don't know if I need, again, I, I'm going to say this routinely. I don't know if I needed a backstory for snow. I think this story could have been a lot more fascinating if it was centered around the establishment and the the development and the progression of the Hunger Games over time, right? And certainly you can sprinkle in, you know, snow, you can sprinkle in all these characters that we get, but to, to have the, the, the story drive through the plot arc of this one person, I just didn't necessarily love. But what I do like that she did was establish early on that he's a master politicker, right? Like I love that those early chapters, I get they might be slower, but you see all the machinations of how he approaches every single situation, knowing someone is watching, someone is, is um, judging, right? Someone is, someone is paying attention and he always has to put on that right face. I, and I think it's easy to think back to the president's know that we know from the trilogy and say, Oh, well, he's this, this, this complete 
just he's a complete character, right? He's always been this evil, very polished, for better, or worse, or otherwise, right? He's always been the guy who we know from the trilogy. I, I do like that if we are going to approach this, I like that she sets him up as I, I wouldn't say he's necessarily evil from the start, right? Like I think I don't I, he's I don't like I want to calculated. Like yes, not, calculated. I wouldn't say yes. evil, but he very knowledgeably makes the choices he makes. Like he's yes. he doesn't go purely off of emotion. Like he has very founded reasoning behind his choices. Yeah, I I agree. And I want to keep my powder dry here because I have what I hope is going to be a very brilliant kind of thought line I want to get to later. Um, but like, whereas I think Voldemort is always like young Tom Riddle is always portrayed as this dark. It's, he's like a ticking time bomb, right? Tom Riddle just needed the right tools and he was always destined to be a terrible character. I don't necessarily know if that's the case for hey. our boy. Coriolanus, Coriolanus, Corio, Young C, whatever. I, I don't know if that was always the case for him. I don't feel like it was. Like, I feel like with Tom Riddle, he was already, like, tormenting children at a very young age. Whereas the things that happened to Snow, I'm going with that because it's easier to say, and I know I'm pronouncing it right. Um <laughs> Are you muted? I was just making another anus comment. It's fine. Continue. Of course you were. Of course. Of course you were. But like the choices led him to where he was, but like some of his choices, like with the outcomes, like baffled me just because I don't have that type of mind, like these choices he would make. And I'm like, that's what you got out of that lesson. Yeah. So let's, so let's talk about, the 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 leaders there's two in particular i think are are worth conversation before we get to talking about the actual hunger games right so there's dean casca highbottom which great last name um who is uh the head of the academy and at least for again massive spoiler alert here for like seven eighths of the book is is known by the world to be the person who created the hunger games as we know them then there's also um, Dr. Gall. Um, I tried super briefly this morning just because I was curious to do some like research into because I know Gall obviously was a was a region and, and a, a, had had its place in ancient Roman, Greek, Hellenic, a bunch of ancient mythology and history. I was curious at the time what the name was there. I couldn't find too much that made a ton of sense. I just want to point out there for all the listeners that I did try to be academic and it just didn't work out. Um, but these are the two people who were introduced to who are the ones who in different ways drive the development and the progression of, of choreo throughout the book. Well, so I'm just, I'm just curious what we're early on high bottom. Great name is portrayed to us as a morphling addict, right? And he, he, he's, He's someone who clearly is dealing with something. We don't know what, we don't know why. We just know that he's a leader who has some interactions with Snow early on that are contentious and uh, uh, Like definitely cynical. doesn't like him, but there's right. no yeah. visible reason of why he doesn't like him at this point. Yeah, so all we know at this point exactly is that there's a distaste um, and, and a, a bit of cynicism there um, from high bottom to Snow and also that, High bottom has some sort of drug problem going on. That's it. 
Um, Dr. Gall, on the other hand, is like Hannibal Lecter. Dr. Gall is the head of the Hunger Games, right? The, the head game maker. Um, and is just from the, the second she comes on screen, is just skinning animals and developing mutts and she also like comes off as kind of loopy like yeah her phraseologies like, you're like are, are you sure you're all there i almost it made me think a little bit of um uh is it bt right with the tiktok um, i right, had yeah. the same initial impression yeah there was just a little there's something off there yeah um you're and those are the two people i i know there are some other i think they're s names like sonia or something like that that are like the tutors kind of like the professors so they're like essentially like the professor and then snow is like the teacher's aide to that. Right. But in, in my opinion, at least again, thinking about this book from like talking about the critical points, though they, they matter less. I think mm-hmm. from an academic standpoint, from like standpoint of the Academy, the two people that matter are Dr. Gall and our boy high bottom. Yes. Um, one of the things, so next we get into the actual Hunger Games. So this is the first Hunger Games where there's going to be mentors because uh, we're led to understand that there really hasn't been that high, much participation or enthusiasm or yeah. And it's the 10th Hunger Game. 10th Hunger Game since the Rebellion. And we, the impression we get is that they're not really popular, right? The, the intention of the Hunger Games, as explained in this book, is the same intention that we get in the trilogy, right? It's it's to not only punish the districts for rebelling against the capital, but also to remind the districts, right, of what happens when you when you try to come at the capital, right? If you're if you're going to come at the king, don't miss. But no one watches. No one seems. It just is a thing they're doing. Um, and so what they decide is that the the top twenty four students from the academy are going to serve as mentors to the tributes, which is the concept that we that we see when we get to our Hunger Games later on. Uh, Snow, it, it's basically picked on family rank slash academic, right? Yeah, you know, who's the slash best of the best? Pay for it, right? It, there's a lot of nepotism and mm-hmm. oligarch, olig, oligarchism. There's a lot of yeah. There, there's a lot of uh, classism, right? Even within yes. the capital, and so the mentors are given the districts in the same in in an order of which you know the best the best districts go to the quote unquote most worthy mentors and snow feels miffed. And again, I think he points to high bottom and this kind of uh, adversarial relationship they developed is the reason why he's given the girl of district 12, Lucy gray Baird, we're, we're soon introduced to um, who he views, of course, before we get to her character as the worst pick of the lot. With this, like this is with this hunger game. It's very different as Steven said, to the books we have come to know. Because, like, with this Hunger Games, it isn't all the show. Like, they haven't figured out how to get people involved, and a lot of people don't watch it. And when the tributes come, they're treated as less than nothing. Like, they're caged in a zoo. They're not fed prior to the games even beginning. Yeah, and this is... This is actually a portion of the book that I I don't want to say enjoy because that feels weird to say given it's it's subhuman torture, but I really appreciate it because I think it does two things. I think a it it gets to a really fascinating part of the book, which is the evolution of the Hunger Games over time. Yes, right, and these are clear indicators where you can point to you know the influence that that 
Corio had as as he you know later on and, and passed the book right as he became president and he became I have to imagine at one point possibly head game maker things like that right you can clearly see the impact that seeing all this had on Snow but what I really really think is a is a nice bit of finesse and nuance is you know when you first read the trilogy I think you know at least I read the books thinking that like the way that they treated the tribute so well was this bit of perverse pleasure right where it's like they don't actually necessarily care about them, right? Like to me, it felt like we're doing all this just to flaunt the fact that we can before we senselessly kill you. Whereas I think what Suzanne Collins is trying to do is to show that a lot of these things, and not all, but a lot, like for instance, you know, cattle car to fancy rail car, instead of being in zoo, being in nice capital, like things like that. Certainly, you know, the games themselves and the mud, it's a different story, but the way that the tributes are treated prior to the, you know, placement in the arena to me feels like Snow genuinely cares. Like the sense that I got was he he cared about the quality of the treatment of the tributes. I think, and we'll get to it in part three of the book. I think you can argue where that sense of care came from and like what it stemmed from what I really like about this part is it's not just, Hey, we're improving it to make it more of a spectacle, but also, Hey, like he genuinely seems to care about the well being of, of the tributes. Yes. I would agree with that. And then who we did not mention, because this also kind of stemmed from his point of view was his friend. Um, Sejanus. Crane. Uh, Crane. Yeah. Was this Crane? I know there's a Crane in there at some point. No, the his. Oh, District Two, yeah, District. District Two, not oh. his friend, but his friend. Um, um, something with a P. Health or something. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, who is? And it also shows like where the capital is at. Who was from District Two, but because of where their money was, ended up in the capital, and he is also one of the mentors. And who also, him, he's almost like the opposite of Snow in his beliefs, where he doesn't agree with anything that, he's essentially a rebel when it comes down to it, is he's out feeding, trying to feed all the tributes because they're not being treated properly. He's trying to make a stand, but is in a place that he doesn't understand and that doesn't understand him. Yeah, and I think... I, I, without talking about the rest of Sejanus, Sejanus, I don't know, we'll call him Sedge for the sake of argument. Uh, the re- without talking about the rest of Sedge's plot arc in this book, you know, I think what we see from him in this beginning part, in the in, prior to the arena, uh, in addition to what we see from, it's Arachne, Arachne Crane, who's one of the other mentors. Crane, I have to imagine, being a, a ancestor of um, Seneca. Yeah. Um, I think they're both really strong lessons for for Snow, right? Because, you know, Sedge continually speaks out, continually speaks out, continually speaks out, and is showing equal amounts of empathy, to your point, for all of the tributes and all this stuff, right? And I, I think, you know, the inner monologue of, of Corio that we read in the books is like, well, he shouldn't be doing this. Like, he needs to, mm-hmm. needs to be more nuanced. Like, his character is 
almost confirming and solidifying because at this point he's like 17, 18 snow is like, so starting to solidify the opinions that form who he becomes. And then you have Arachne crane, who is the mentor who is basically treating the tribute like a monkey behind bars and is giving food and taking it away and teasing until the tribute stabs Arachne in the neck and crane gets got and dies. And I think there's a less, a really strong lesson there too. And not to pull another fandom here, but um, I, I know Melisandre says it in the, in the TV show. I forget, if, I forget if it's in the books. I feel like it has to be, but basically you don't want to show the lamb, you know, the blade, you know, the knife's blade. Cause it, it, um, it spoils the meat, right? It spoils the flavor of the meat. I think there's a big lesson there and don't like eat, even if you're you're going to end up senselessly murdering these these tributes, right, you can't show them the blade ahead of time um, because I think that spoils the the perception of the games to the world, right? If mentors are out there getting murdered by tributes, what does that say, right? What what lesson does that does that give off to the rest of the district? So I I, I thought that was fascinating as well. But let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about Lucy Gray. Uh, who is the the tribute from District 12, who is picked and has a, I don't want to call it a moment of rebellion, but stands out immediately from the rest of the tributes across all 12 districts. And all I want to say here to start is I really, they could have picked another damn district. Like, yeah. she basically pulled the same exact plot device that she pulled in the original, right? Like, yeah. hey, the female tribute from District 12 is a little bit different than the rest of the tributes. And she's kind of the one that we're going to stick on to for the rest of the story. I mean, come on. Yeah, it would have been nice to see a different district represented. And I understand, like, they were trying to, like, make these, like, throwback moments to the original trilogy. But at the same time, they weren't necessary throwbacks. It was more, like, fan service things of things that were mentioned. And they didn't add to what the trilogy was. It was just like, oh, I recognize that thing. Yeah, I, th- I think there could be one possible conversation point there on how history more or less repeats itself, and 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 things are circular, right? Like, uh, like the hang, like the executions in the city square, the hanging tree. Like, mm-hmm. there's there's probably some social commentary there on in in a time of stasis, things are doomed to repeat itself. Um. But she could have picked another damn district. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like we get teases of it in the original trilogy with Finn and Annie and and Mags and uh, with Rue and uh, you know obviously we see a lot of district. I think two in particular, um, especially in the movie when when we're talking about you know the the second war. But she could have picked another one to give us some more context and color. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree with that because I also think there's like other districts that she would have fit in more than like being like, I am the flower child of district 12. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about something that I think was a, a miss in the book in terms of, I think something that she was, Collins was trying to draw a strong plot connection to, but just failed, which is the first paper, right? The essay about how to engage the people of Pan Am in the games uh, this is the one that Corio is supposed to write with, uh, I'm going to call her Clementine, but it's it's Clem- Clemenzia or whatever, 
the one who gets turned basically into like half a snake. Yeah. Um, because basically Dr. Gall tortures her for, so what happens, right? Let me start from the beginning. So, uh, they have to write this assignment together on how to, how better to engage the people of Pan Am in the hunger games. Cause again, that's the central kind of point of friction for the capital in this book is the games exist, but they're not really well engaged with. So what's the point of having them? So, um, Long story short, because of the funeral of Crane, of Arachne, who, again, got killed by a tribute, Corio just goes to write it by himself because Clemenza is too distraught. Corio then takes it with Clemenza to the Citadel uh, to give to Dr. Gall to here's our paper. Uh, Dr. Gall has this elaborate trick where essentially there's these snakes that come back into play later in the book, and the snake will only attack you if it doesn't recognize your smell because only Corio wrote the paper. Clementine's smell is not on the paper and he Clementine gets bit to shreds. Um, I think I, I, what feels obvious to me is what she's trying to do is set up the whole conversation with high bottom at the very end of the book where mm-hmm. high bottom reveals, well, your father was actually the person who, created the hunger games. He wrote this whole thing by himself more. We talked about it together, but he wrote it, slapped my name on it, submitted it. Of course he died in the war. So now I'm the person who is saddled with this entire legacy. Yeah. And that's why I am the way I am. I just, it, it, to me, I don't know how you felt about it. It just didn't get there for me. Like I didn't, like I understand the connection obviously, cause I'm someone who can read literature with a critical lens, but like, I just didn't I have the same the emotional connection, heft. But at the same time, it was just like, it was more like, Gall playing games, like being cruel for no apparent reason, kind of like a Bellatrixy type. Oh, I'm just going to play with these people. Mm-hmm. I again, while I don't necessarily think we get the payoff in this book, at least I do think this little story arc is fascinating for the development of Doctor Gall. Yes. While I don't think it does much for Corio, I don't think it does anything for poor Snake Girl Clementine, um, or for High Bottom. Right? I think it does propel kind of the 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 mystery and the mystification of Doctor Gall because she's the type of character who, throughout the entire book, keeps Corio kind of on the edge of his seat. Like he's never truly comfortable around her, uh, and I think that I think that was fascinating. And like- right everything with her and him is like she's trying to teach him a lesson and make him think in a different way with every single thing she does. Right. So let's talk a little bit now to wrap up part one about the arena, because that's how part one more or less ends. Certainly there's a little bit of a a scene they tie off with afterwards. Um, But what, what did you make of, of the arena and of that whole scene with the arena and, and the escape and everything that came with it. It was like when they were touring the arena. Well, yeah. Yeah. When they were touring the arena, the whole history of it, right. That for these original hunger games, every hunger games was there. They didn't clean. They didn't. Yeah. Like we got so used to in the regular books is that it was a new thing every year. Like, there's always a new challenge, and in this, they're just like, oh, no, we just use this arena. We don't change anything. Nothing happens. Like, it's the same exact place. We just dump these people here, and they die. 
Whereas in this, one of the first things that happens in the arena is it's bombed by rebels, but maybe it wasn't rebels. You never know an actual answer, but it like mixes up the arena enough that there's now an actual game verse from what it appears or sounds like in the books is that initially the hunger games was they let them loose and they all kind of killed each other immediately. Cause there wasn't like any real place to hide or there was no like real alliances being formed. It was just like all out kill fest and it was done. Yeah. Look, I promise I'm not trying to force this metaphor in, but I feel it actually fits. What I kept coming back to was almost kind of like, like Tiger King, right? Because the original Hunger Games, again, held in this arena, the tributes are treated like cattle. If even, I mean, cattle might be too generous. They're malnourished, they're they're mistreated, like, and they're kind of just thrown in here to either die of starvation or just kill each other. Yeah, and That's after it. the bombing, they were treated by a vet. They weren't sent to right. a doctor, they sent a vet. Right. And so, to me, that felt... And then, like, the Hunger Games that we see in the in the original trilogy is vastly different, right? The Never mind the fact that they're treated like royalty for, like, the week or whatever it is that they're alive before they're put in the arena. But then the arena itself is, is a spectacle. To me, again, think about the Tiger King. The, you know, Joe Exotic's, you know, park in, in Oklahoma is just a bunch of tigers who are malnourished, malfed, mistreated, just thrown in a cage. Right. And it's sad and it's depressing. And, and, and I'm cer- certainly not to say that what Doc Antle in South Carolina is doing is better. I guess I still think it's horrible, you know, treatment of animals, but there's a facade there. Like everything about Doc Antle is this glorious spectacle and it's this beautiful preserve and it's, it's bright and it's portrayed in, in a luxurious light. Right. And I, I think, I don't necessarily know if there's a moral here again, but I, I think, you know, from you know there's something to be said there about the games right i think you know talking about how to engage people more in the games which is kind of the whole driving point of the capital again for this book i think snow among others i'm sure but predominantly snow recognizes you have if you're going to give people a show you have to put on a show right like if if we're going even if it's still going to end with 23 dead tributes you have to throw out all the bells and whistles because otherwise people don't people don't want to watch 24 malnourished mistreated no incentive to live people fight or just die because of starvation inside a rickety old arena that's bomb you know half half shelled out and covered in you know bloodstains um so yeah anyway there's my tiger king reference for the episode yeah and like through that is that in this game is where they start the betting on tributes the being able to sponsor a tribute and it's it's one of snow's ways of getting people more involved is that they need to feel like they're invested or have the opportunity to to choose their tribute so that's actually a really nice transition into part two of the prize right so that's how part two opens is the interviews and the introduction of betting and this whole thing and in her interview again it just feels way too much like Hey, let's take Katniss, but make it slightly different than Katniss. Uh, Lucy Gray sings a song. And this is, at least in my opinion, the first moment where the seed is planted. And the song is is not even hinted so much as, you know, telegraph that it's about a lover, former lover, some person of interest for Lucy Gray back in District 12. 
And this to me feels like the first real moment where the the seed is kind of planted in Snow's head that like, oh, wait a minute, like can I trust this girl? Um, and that's something that look, not to get all the way to the end here, but I think it's somewhat easy to read the last chapter, last two chapters of the book and feel like, at least for me, he turned on a hair point turn with no rationale. All of a sudden he went from, you know, la di da di da in love with escape to, Oh, wait a minute. I got to kill this girl. Yeah. Um, and whether she's successfully or not, I don't really know. But I think the start here of part two is where you're first introduced to the inner monologue of snow, where he, is starting to treat Lucy Gray the same way he basically treats everyone else in the world, which is with a, a skepticism and cynicism and a, you know, a, a, a sense of suspicion. Yes. But at the same time, he's also trying to, fr- he's trying to frame her as someone that's not district in quotes. Like they, because he wants to be able to get her sponsors and everything. He's framing her in a way that she's different. So she's more like capital and that she's better because there's definitely a lot of like, I don't recall if it was as prominent in the initial trilogy where they're like, oh, they're district. Or if we see that more because this book starts out in the capital and it takes place mainly in the capital and with capital people. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think the difference here, at least for me, is the lack of extreme... Uh, wealth in the capital, right? We're only 10 years out from the rebellion. I th- you know, a lot of the city, as, as described to us by Snow, is still pretty bombed out and in rubble and things like that. Whereas, you know, the original trilogy, when Katniss and the Tributes get to the, to the capital, it's, it's like Shangri-La, it's like an oasis, right? And everybody, not just the things, but the people. Right. Like everything's extravagant. Even the fashion is like over the top that it's not the choices are not out of necessity, but out of proving you have extra. Right. So there's this whole kind of side plot. If you, if you ask me that comes up next here about these new taxation laws and essentially like he's afraid he's going to kicked out of his house because they can't afford the tax, blah, blah, blah. It's this whole thing. I don't know. Uh, there's an essay that another essay he has to write about the positives of the war. And I think, again, I don't, find that too compelling. I think it's something that is definitely in his head and Corio's head as the hunger games, you know, approach. And as you're about to start them, but I don't, I don't feel any need to get too deep into that unless you do. No, not really. Cause even his response was like a bunch of fluff. Right. Um, like it didn't really add to his character. It was just kind of like, it's echoed back at the end that he has a more built out response, but it wasn't really like anything that added to anything. Right. So then we're on the eve of the Hunger Games here. Uh, Lucy Gray has kissed young Corio. Um, yeah, that happened. Um, young C gave Lucy Gray his mother's makeup compact and basically tells her like, hey, there's this little like Heidi, I don't know how makeup compacts work, Like there's this little Heidi hole in here. You should fill it with poison because there's all this rat poison in the zoo. Major plot point comes back around later, but that's the thing that happens. Um, and yeah, the Hunger Games start, but again, to the, 
to the whole, again, to, to what I think you're supposed to understand drives a lot of what we're going to call reform, but Snow's reform of the Hunger Games, when the games start, you know, 10 of the 24 are already dead, like before the start of the thing. And so are like a bunch of the mentors on top of yeah. that. Yeah, people, look, I think it would be very compelling television to talk about all this, but I understand how, because like, you know, I don't know. I I mean, I, who, who's to say that hasn't happened in the past? I suppose that probably has happened in the past. Maybe it's not compelling, but anywho, the Hunger Games start, one tribute's on the loose, uh, 10 are dead. Um, it's like four yeah, or five that, mentors dead. Yeah. Um, again, another, what I'm going to call McGonagall moment, although I think it makes sense. Uh, there's Lucky Flickerman, who obviously is uh, one of Caesar's grandparents i don't know obviously some relation to our boy mm-hmm. uh, i like that that one you know again grounds yeah. us in the universe it's like oh okay yeah he was like the, the cap- weatherman and then he got it's the first year they're doing a live broadcast of the whole game so he's like there 24 7 yeah and like i think it kind of fits the mo of what i understand the capital would be of like oh like granddaddy did the job daddy did the job i'm doing the job yeah I like that. Everything's um, a family business, no matter what realm you're in. You don't yeah, really so, have choices outside what was predetermined. Right. So one of the things that dominates kind of the pages in the in the lead up to the start of the games is Marcus District Two's tribute being on the loose. He escaped during this whole bombing of the you know, possible rebel bombing. As Annie was talking about of the arena, uh, the game start and uh, Marcus got got, and he's. Uh, living on a prayer, um, just hanging from the top of the arena, basically on the top of a crane, uh, or something like that. So, uh, not good, not good. Um, like half of the tributes that are even in there are already half dead from malnutrition and disease from the zoo. Yeah. Um, Basically, the start of the Hunger Games like isn't not much happening because you know like at this point we're led to understand there's not like whereas we see in the the trilogy that we know with Katniss the the game makers are throwing in shit left and right from the start, um, be it the cornucopia and everything that comes with that to all the different traps and and mutts and and everything that we see right yeah. tracker jack everything we see throughout that. In this Hunger Games, basically all you have is this arena and everyone goes into hiding. Everyone's like, Yeah, and like even with the first year of delivering gifts, the drones are not great. Like they deliver it and then they crash. Yeah, so like that's so it's not like great. showing you like where they're at. Like there's nothing really actually works. It's like all found technology due to the war. Yeah, so everyone everyone's hiding. The games kind of suck. Yeah, it took like a full day for anything to even happen in the arena. And the only and the only reason something happens is because Sedge, who is again a mentor, is while from District Two, he is living in the capital in a very wealthy family. Just decides, hey, I'm gonna go into the arena, uh, probably kill myself. I imagine that's what he was going for. I don't know. Um that's the thing that happens. And Dr. Gall's like, Hey, uh, Corio, you're his only friend. You got to go in there and save him in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the night. Um, and this whole thing ensues where he, he talks him out of it. Our Corio talks Sedge out of it as they're escaping. Tributes are coming out of left and right because tributes 
I don't necessarily know if they know they're the mentors. I don't, I don't remember entirely, but tributes see someone out in the open. They're like, Hey, you know, I don't think it matters killed. to them either way. Yeah. Uh, so long story short, Corio bashes the head in. I believe it was a kid from district six. Um, either way, he bashes the head in of some, some kid. Um, and that's something that sits with him kind of in his inner monologue for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Oh, I'm capable of doing this. Um, and his reasoning, he like places the blame on if this person didn't do this, which caused this, I wouldn't have had to do this. Right. Um, but so then fast forward, because again, a, a lot of this, what, maybe it's because it takes place in this static arena. I don't know. But it's just not, and I, no shots at Suzanne Collins, who I think is a remarkable writer. It, it, it's not her best writing. Like yeah. the game, you know, the quarter quell with the beach and everything and the rainforest is just remarkable writing because there's so much vibrant, distinct, distinctly different things happening every time you turn the page. The original Hunger Games that we read in the trilogy, you know, this this beautiful forest, right? I, in my mind, it was kind of like Denver. I'm not really sure why I came to Denver in my mind for that one. Um, but like the, the scenery that she creates allows for a lot of great writing. Whereas this takes place inside of like, basically I'm imagining like an old football stadium, right? An yeah. It's stadium. Cause like half the tributes are like hiding in the stands. Right. Um, so it's just not great writing. And so let's move forward a little bit. So I think the next big thing that happens, right. Is Corio is in the Citadel, like, which is where all Dr. Gall's creatures are. And he sees the snakes again, the snakes almost in like a Dumbledore mirror of Erised plot point. Corio remembers, um, you know, react to your smell and react positively to your smell as, as in they don't, they don't kill you if they remember your smell. So he drops in this handkerchief that Lucy Gray had touched or whatever. And he's like, oh, this will save her. Sure enough, it does. But, you know, that happens. Um I mean, yeah, then the snake thing happens, right? So Corio, again, handkerchief into the snakes. Sure, what do you know? The snakes show up in the arena. Um, Lucy Gray comes out like, uh, um, there's probably some great biblical metaphor here that I'm I'm not grasping, but the one who drives the snakes out of Ireland, basically, right? Yeah, there we go. Um, Yeah. And everyone's like dying left and right from these snakes. Lucy's like, yeah, these things are my friends. I sing to them and they're cool with me. I don't know what's up with it. It's like the Pied Piper. She's just like marching through and there's snakes following her as she sings. Yeah. So like that works. Um, She then fast forward also like, is she hugging another? Like, it's not like a hug, like a loving hug, but she's in like a very close, like hand to hand combat embrace with uh, Reaper. No, no, no. I lied. I'm sorry. Reaper dies from the puddle. Reaper is another tribute who like seemed to be the leader in the clubhouse. It's the he, one with like the T. Yeah. Anywho. We're really um, bad at names. Yeah, well, it, There are a lot of crazy names. Yeah. Um, Lucy Gray poisons some water with the rat poison and the water is what Reaper's been drinking from. So he gets got. But then she like, again, hand to hand combat with some other tribute. And there's a, one of the snakes has been hiding in like her like sleeve of her dress or something. Uh, snake, you know, kills the attacker. Game over. Um, so yeah, Lucy Gray wins the Hunger Games. Great moment, right? Oh my God, she's done. They can be in love together. Blah 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 blah. But no, that uh, that druggy high bottom's got to get in the way. Uh, part two ends with Corio going into Dean Highbottom's classroom or office or something, 
and high bottoms got in front of him. Um, uh, a napkin, which was clearly used, we didn't talk about it earlier because it didn't really matter that much, but um, evidence that Corio had been smuggling the food out of the academy, big no-no. Uh, his mother's makeup compact, where the rat poison was that Lucy Gray had, big no-no. And the handkerchief that he put inside the snake pit, again, big no-no. Guess what, Corio? Lucy Gray wins the Hunger Games. Uh, you are going to be a peacekeeper. So uh, pack your things up and your career is over. And that's how part two ends. Yep. Part three. Part three is... Things get... Look, things are already pretty weird. Things get weird here, in my opinion. Because it's simultaneously some of the best writing of this book, in my opinion. Because, again, I think... And maybe it's why she picked District 12 again as as the place that was going to be the main district she wrote about. But I think Suzanne Collins has a really good grasp on writing district 12 and writing the seam and writing the hob and, and all of the ins and outs of the meadow and, and, mm-hmm. and the fence. And I, I think she really nails it. Like, I think it's, it's easily her best writing in the book. Yeah. It's like it's the also, thing she's most familiar with. Yeah. I, I sure. Yes. Yes, it is. I don't know necessarily. I don't necessarily know if that's why she's so good at it. Right. Or if for whatever, like, for, she has the yeah. best vision of it. Yeah, for whatever reason, she brought us back to 12 uh, with Lucy Gray as kind of the main district tribute. And um, as we'll see here, Corio volunteers to be a, a, a peacekeeper in District 12. Let me just ask, how do we feel, not, not just about uh, Lucy Gray more or less being a different but same version of, of Katniss a couple generations back, but also from from Snow's POV, right? So Snow's family, again, we said were rich. They were rich because they had a munitions factory or munitions warehouse or whatever in District 13, which we know was at least on the face of the earth was bombed off. Of course, as we well know, they live underground, but a whole different story. So that's how they lost their wealth, right? It's District 13. But then also that Snow becomes a peacekeeper in 12. Right? Knowing what we know about modern day president snow how how do you feel about all that it just feels disjointed like i don't know how to explain it like it it doesn't feel like it added anything that he is aware of district 12 or had any extra hate for district 12 it was more so he just hated what katniss stood for And, like, then they bring in the thing with the Mockingjays, which also seems like kind of like a, he's just going to hate this type of bird. Yeah. Again, coming back to, I think, both of our central feelings about the book is I don't really know if we needed a backstory for Snow. And I think it almost kind of, I think it kind of lessens the punishment that he doles out in the original trilogy, because again, I think you're right in the trilogy. He was indiscriminately taking down district 12 because that's just where Katniss was from. It wasn't, yeah. it might've been personal to her specifically, but it wasn't necessary. Like it wasn't like this whole, like ye- like lifelong, like yep. thing of hurt and pain. And yeah, it almost cheapens it in my mind. And even though in theory it should deepen it and make it more momentous, I think it actually has the opposite effect. Yeah. Yeah. It just made Um, it like a reason you were creating that wasn't echoed in the original 
trilogy, and I don't think it needed to be District 12 for that reason. Yeah, so look, there's a lot of stuff that happens in in part three. I'm going to zoom through it. Um, Sedge also volunteers as a tribute. Well, we think volunteers as a tribute out there. Um, So Sedge joins him out there. Uh, Sedge eventually is part of some whole rebel plot and gets executed. That's really all you need to know there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of characters from the Covey, which I view as like this like nomadic country band that travels around. Gypsies. Like, yeah, they're gypsies. And like for me, like maybe, and no, no shots at the great people of West Virginia. But every time I read like all the different names and like the like Appalachia country, it felt, well, okay, like it's Appalachia, not Appalachia, but, but it, that's fine. Um, with the Appalachians, I, I, so I went with that. Well, it's the Appalachian Mountains. It depends on where in the country you're from. It, it, it depends on where in the country you're from. Look, let's be clear. In North Carolina, it's the Appalachian Mountains. That's neither here nor there. Pennsylvania, it's the Appalachians. Okay, well, look, y'all can be <laughs> wrong. Um, anywho, there's a lot of people. There's like someone named Tope, someone named Ivory. There's a little girl named May or Maud, right? Maud, Maud Ivory. Yeah. Look, there's there's all these characters that kind of swim in and out of Corio's life and. Corio falls in love, or probably already is in love. He he gets to, I won't say consummate. I don't feel, I feel like it's more infatuation. Okay, he falls in lust. Corio is able to, and again, I don't want to say consummate, because I'm not sure if they actually banged, but Corio is able to, to be with uh, Lucy Gray and to kind of live this kind of half-in, half-out life, where yeah, he's a peacekeeper and he's doing his duties there, but he goes to the hob and he, he's able to listen to her sing and he's able to be with her and go to the meadow. Um, but continually throughout part three, there's this, and again, what started in part two in the beginning of part two, when Lucy Gray sings the song during her interview, there's this thing that's gnawing at him with the lover from, from district 12, from Lucy Gray's lover in district 12. And there's always like this seed of jealousy and doubt and, it just it, it almost feels like someone's like stabbing him with like a really thin, not too deep needle, right? Like every couple pages, he's like, "Oh yeah, like I'm, I'm you know, I love Lucy Gray. I'm so excited to hear her sing." Oh wait a minute, there's another guy. Like what the hell am I supposed to do about this? Yeah, and it also feels like a Gale throwback, like this rebel. Well, hey, well, hey there, catnip. My name's Gay. I, I, <laughs> as one of my. As, as my most recent ex-girlfriend who does not listen to this podcast would know, she and I used to love making fun of Gail nonstop. Um, we would just, I'd, I'd call her up. I'd be like, well, hey there, catnip. How's your day going? I'll take care of, I'll take care of a little duck real good. And I'll make sure mama's got food. Anywho, that's neither here nor there. Continue. It just like felt like they were like, they had that character as like, cause it was almost like they were trying to create, the same situation just from another perspective so it was like the pita katniss gale with snow um whatever his face is and lucy gray so yeah and look i want to get to the end of the book here not because i want to rush through it but because i do want to try to tie this back to the story that you know is the genesis of this podcast which is harry potter and so Again, like we, like I said, Sedge dies, he gets killed because there's this whole plot where he's trying to steal weapons and things for the rebels. Long story short, uh, Corio acts not accidentally. It's kind of accident. It, it's kind. It's like a. Def, it's like a. Uh, 
a defensive manslaughter, right? Like there's this whole commotion in the back of the hob and there's the rebels are talking and Corio happens to be there and Corio happens to steal a gun from some, Corio shoots someone with a gun really is all you need to know. Uh, It's an illegal contraband gun. He obviously shouldn't have killed someone. I think you also could argue though, he didn't do that. Like he did out of self-defense. It's this whole convoluted thing. Corio shoots someone with a gun. The gun goes missing. That's all you need to know. So fast forward to the last literally 18 pages of the book. And I'm just going to, Corio and Lucy Gray, are, they decide to leave together. They're going to go off, you know, beyond the districts and just live happily ever after. Um, and that's it. They're going to be in in lust. I won't say in love because the enemy objects, which is fine. Um, I, look, look, look I, I don't. The turn don't at the disagree. end, I'm just like, I don't think he ever actually cared. Well, yeah, no, look, I don't. He was, all, he was just all up in his emotions. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree whatsoever. Um, and so they're off on the run, you know, deep in the meadow. They're literally in that meadow. They're beyond the fence. They're on the, they're on the run. Um, and Lucy's out going to find food, I believe, or something. And they're Katniss, at the yeah, she's going to pick Katniss. Yeah, that was weird, too. That Katniss was a flower. Well, we so, knew it was a flower because... Well, right. It just felt weird seeing literally the word Katniss. Like, it just... Yeah. It was a weird off. to, like, throw that in there. Um, but That's, so, like, also fan... Yeah, fan service. Um, but so they're they're at this like shack house that um, is intimate, like it's a rebel house, right? Like the place where they go when they're out in the meadow, like, you know, whatever, right? And Lucy's out finding food while Corio's at the house. And I'm just going to kind of read, I want to read a couple passages. So um, after she left, he lifted the bottom of the burlap bag and the weapon slid out onto the floor. Kneeling beside the pile, he picked up the peacekeeper's rifle he had killed Mayfair with and cradled it in his arms. Here it was, the murder weapon. Not in a capital forensic lab, but here, in his hands, in the middle of the wilderness, where it posed no threat at all. All he had to do was destroy it, and he would be free from the hangman's noose. Free to go back to the base. Free to go forward to District 2. And this is where, like... Almost in like a murder mystery plot, all of a sudden things just shift on a dime. Because I, look, I, I agree that he definitely maybe I, love is a strong word, but I I thought I thought he was. I mean, obviously, with that, I know how the series ends, so, so it's kind of weird to say I thought. But if you didn't know that he eventually became President Snow, up until that point in the book, I was pretty convinced that he would run off with uh, Lucy. Yes. Had I not had the knowledge of who he becomes, I would have been in the same thought process. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he finds the gun and realizes, oh, they can't trace me back to the murder because the gun's here. I thought the gun, I thought the, like the Capitol had the gun this whole time and they were just waiting to arrest me and kill me, but no, I'm good. So then he says, and I'm quoting here, once the gun was gone, there'd be nothing to connect him to the murders. Absolutely nothing. No wait, there would be one thing, Lucy Gray. And basically all you need to know are that the last 15 pages of the book are like him on on a hunt. Like he's out there like stalking her through the woods and he's like, here, Lucy, like it's creepy. It is dark. It's like, it's like a human hunting an animal. Like it's bizarre. And yeah. Oh, Almost kind of in like a, for any of my Sopranos fans out there, like in Pine Barrens, where you don't know if uh, 
Paulie actually shot the Russian, you don't actually know if Corio kills Lucy Gray. He thinks he saw her. He shot something. He thinks he got something. Doesn't actually know. He gets bitten by a snake and he has to crawl back to, to base and get treated. Um, but that, you know, he goes off to the capital. The book ends. He thinks he's going to district two to become a peacekeeper there in district two, a big promotion, but he ends up back in the capital where at first he's terrified because, well, why wouldn't you be? He thought you were free of this. But then Dr. Gall's like, you think I'd really let you go off? You silly kid. No, we got a lot of training to do. Um, and yeah, you learn that Corio has implemented a lot of the things that he noticed throughout the games to improve engagement. And a lot of the things that we now know are part of the modern day hunger games and yeah, book over. Yeah. It's not a super strong plot. Not like an overall story. Those last 20 pages just left me drawing a blank because... Yeah, it just fe- it felt more like I just read someone's autobiography. Like, yeah. like Because like, the story didn't take you anywhere, really. It would have felt more typical for literature to me if there had been like this, come with me, and he was like, no, I can't. And like he went back to being a peacekeeper and she yeah. went off and ran away. That would have felt like a more typical ending to literature. Like I understand how that's kind of the easy way out. Yeah. But I almost but feel like that would have been the better way because like this just, this felt weird. Cause like, cause like after the, he killed like his third person, he was like, I don't want, I can't kill more people. Like so-and-so is the reason that these people died. And then all of a sudden he's like, I will kill her. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. It just, like, it wasn't necessarily out of character, but after you see him, like, making logical reasons for every death he has been the cause of, for him to go, I am now going to hunt her down. Well, he does have a logical, he says she would be the only person left to connect him to the murder. Yes. But it just, it felt, it just felt so odd. I don't know. Listeners, if you've read the book, curious how y'all feel, slide in the DMs. Send us your thoughts via email, creatingmagicpodcast at gmail.com. Curious how you feel, but I want to I wanna wrap up this pod by trying to tie this back to the story that we know and love Harry Potter because throughout reading this book, I kept coming back to two different character arcs that were exposed to in Harry Potter and you know the, those of, of Voldemort, which I think is the easy one because he's the bad guy, um, but also Dumbledore. And I think that the the different ways in which J.K. Rowling approaches filling in their characters versus kind of what Suzanne Collins tried to do here. So I'm curious. I don't know if I want to say compare and contrast, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the character development that we see for either or both of Voldemort and Dumbledore and, and what we get in this book with Snow. I feel like if you would place them in like an order, Snow would find fall like in between Voldemort and Dumbledore, where Voldemort has always had this maliciousness about him. He's always had this charm, and that kind of relates to Snow is that he's able to charm his way through life while still having these intentions. But with Dumbledore, there's actually like a emotional battle there whereas even though we saw snow's thoughts there was never really a battle except for like 
placing the blame for his problems on other people and not taking responsibility for things. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fascinating because like we kind of alluded to earlier with Voldemort, young Tom Riddle was again always someone who felt destined for evil. Like he didn't even if he had just stayed in the well, Muggle world power, his entire life. Like well, even if he had stayed in the Muggle world his entire life, right? He would have ended up not necessarily doing good, right? Yes. Like I think that's evident. Um I think what Suzanne Collins is trying to do with snow is give him a Dumbledore-esque upbringing and background in the sense that, I mean, obviously they end up kind of on different ends of the spectrum at the very end as finished products, Dumbledore being this bastion for, for what is good and, 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 and for hope and all that. And snow being the dictator that we see in the trilogy, but with their upbringings, they both respective authors try to bring in nuance, right? That Dumbledore grew up, as someone and, and and I I think actually I come to think of it here we go here's a here's a great thought at least I think right both stories if you want to limit them to each of these characters are about the trappings of power and the corruption of absolute power over time given you know given that it's left unchecked yeah right and it Dumbledore might be, well I'll let you finish your thought well yeah it's just that you know Dumbledore I. Th- we don't have the full picture yet because we're still getting it throughout throughout this Fantastic Beast series. But what we're led to understand is that Dumbledore, whether it's through seeing Grindelwald do what he did or just through maturation, whatever, right? Dumbledore realizes that the dabbles he had with you know wizard autonomy and and power were corrupting and were wrong, and he recognizes that he has to limit himself and check himself, and so he puts himself basically into it's hard to say exile. He's the, the most powerful wizard in the world. And he's the leader of the predominant wizarding school in Europe. But he puts himself more or less into a power vacuum, right, for, for the rest puts, of his life. Yeah, he puts himself in a place where he can't really be tempted. Right, whereas I think... Cause you, I think you can make the argument that, Again, like I thought, again, without if I didn't know the end of the story, I could argue that Snow was going to run off with Lucy Gray and live, right? Mm-hmm. And he, I mean, whether he becomes powerful in a good way, who's to say? But, you know, he he could have lived a relatively good life, like a life that was that didn't do net, net harm, right? It, yeah. it did either net neutral or net good. Instead, he recognizes the, the influence of power and, and, and the leverage that he has to wield and says, I'm going to take everything I, ha- I I can with both hands and just scoop it up. And, and mm-hmm. that's when you're led, that, that's what leads to this, this finished product we get, which is this, I mean, quite literally poisoned, but, you know, this corrupted, dark, twisted, malicious dictator. And I think it's a fascinating kind of dichotomy between the two. Yeah, and you can almost, like, not a direct comparison, but it's almost in a way where, like, Snow seeking power, it's you can almost compare him to, like, Fudge. Like, Fudge is not quite as, like, determined and all, but, like, towards that end part where he's, like, just trying to stay in control, you can kind of see Snow going in that route of trying to maintain his... Well, this point is, like, trying to gain his power and get there... But well, you know, I, the characters yeah. overall, you're just kind of like, 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you get to the the original Hunger Games trilogy, I do think you probably do see a lot of of corny fudge uh, in in President Snow, right? Like as he's just shamelessly pushing Seneca to to eliminate the threat, and mm-hmm. yeah, there, there's a lot of the, like uh, I think Fudge is bumbling and inept for a lot of the books, but when you get to Order of the Phoenix, I think that's where you see the parallels, where all of a sudden Fudge like, no, like, I got to do whatever I can. I'm going to show my hand. I don't care. But I got to do whatever I can to retain my power. Yeah. And I think that's what Snow does. And I think in both circumstances, it obviously backfires in that, well, you showed your hand and the other side showed a way to to work around it. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to try to put a bow on this entire thing, like we've said already about 14 times, I, you know, I just don't know if I needed a story through, through the main vehicle of, of young Snow. I think... I think there's tons of great content in here about the evolution of the Hunger Games, um, about the capital post post rebellion and post war, and I, I think there's a lot that she could continue to write if she wanted to. And if you ask me, from the end of this book, it seems like there's probably another one coming. Um, I just feel like there's other characters that I would like, even like someone as simple as Tigris or Tigris or however you whatever. say. Whatever. Yeah. Like, that could be an interesting story, is, like, watching her perspective of Snow, but also how she ends up being, like, the tailor in the, like, and I feel like that story could be very compelling. I just don't find Snow's story to be compelling because I texted you this, is essentially, in Chapter 1, Snow is a dick, and in the end, he still is. Yeah, Like he's just a dick with more formed opinions. Well, yeah, I think that is what you're supposed to take from the book in terms of the development of the character is that whether intentionally or otherwise, although Dr. Gall certainly tries to portray it as intentional, this entire thing has been a a lesson for Snow in understanding the perspective of the other. So you therefore know how to crush the the hope and the soul of the other. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I just, I, I personally would have found almost like protagonist agnostic, just like a general story. Like even if you did it from like the perspective of the mentors, right. Of, of, of the 24 mentors. Um, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of great content. Again, I don't want to repeat myself too much, but there's a lot of great content about the reconstruction of the capital and the evolution of these games. And I think you still can delve into the insanity of Dr. Gall and the, the, the sad story that is Casca Highbottom. And, you know, I think you can talk about kind of the, the facade, you know, the facade wealth of the snows versus the nouveau riche. And I think there's a lot of stuff there. I don't necessarily know if you had to ground it through the lens of one character, especially I, one. I agree. Who, especially that character. Yeah. yeah. Um, so look, to the thousands of listeners out there who have persisted through what I think at least now is like an hour and 20 minutes of us rambling about a book. That's not the book that this podcast is meant to be about. Uh, if you have read uh, a ballad of songbirds and snakes, the, the newest piece of the hunger games uh, universe, we want to hear your thoughts. Uh, shoot us a DM either at creating magic podcast, which is of course the podcast account. Uh, Danny's at Mandrakes and Mischief. I am, of course, at Muggle and Khakis. Uh, shoot us an email, creatingmagicpodcast at gmail.com. You know, let us know what you think. Um, be it about 
the book, the plot, how it ties into Harry Potter, I don't know, whatever, right? doesn't matter. Uh, if you have any thoughts whatsoever that surround this, surround this book, we'd love to hear them. Yeah. And I'd like to also throw out, if there are other books that you would think have some parallel, send them to us. Steven and I like reading. Yes, I will say I posted in my one of my work uh, chats the other day. I have you know for different groups of colleagues and everything from for the program I'm a part of. We have there's like sixty of us that are in a chat. And I anyone reading the book and most people just dismissed me and I'm like, well, that's kind of rude, but that's neither here nor there. But a couple people did respond and say, no, but like you should read. I forget the names, but I haven't written down. There were a couple other series. I think one was the Divergent series. Yeah. Um, never heard of that until the other day. Oh, wow. And then, I, you might like that one. Then the other one, oh, I've got my little notebook here. Um, the Name of the Wild, um, which is something that's a series that was described to me as more or less Harry Potter, but with a much more scientific lens. Even. Um, apparently I think there's five books and I think one of them is being released right now. I don't know. Anywho point is we would love to hear about any other series that y'all find fascinating as it relates to Harry Potter. Uh, the last thing I do want to say is not necessarily a creator shout out, but like a, a bastardized creator shout out is, uh, my birthday was this past week and I certainly am not one for my own birthday. Um, for reasons we don't need to get into here, because that would just be a really depressing end to what I thought otherwise has been a pretty nice podcast. But I do want to shout out the myriad of people in the Potter community who who sent me some well wishes. Um, I'm not even going to try to name too many names because there's too many people to. to I, I would inevitably forget somebody, but you know, among among others, certainly you know, Danny. Um, I mean, you sent me well wishes on a casual Tuesday, much less on my birthday. You were, you were very sweet and I appreciate you. And you got me this microphone for my birthday. So um, from about episode 13 onwards, if you like the quality of my voice, you can thank Danny for that. Um, I want to thank our good friend, Lex Jensen at underscore Lex Potter underscore. Those underscores are silent. Uh, Lex got me um, a couple different prints that are super, super cool. I'm excited to get my hands on those. Um, and then she also uh, got me a cameo video from our boy, the Bulgarian Bonbon, Stan. Um, Stan he Anevsky. called you the American Bonbon. Technically, he called me the U.S. Bonbon, but American works. sound. He said, he said, the X Bonbon, wherever you are from. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, that was awesome. That was super fucking cool. So thank you, Lex. Um, I want to say thank you to Paula, Unpensivable, La Peluca, Peluca de, de Harry. Harry. Also La Peluca de Luna recently. Um, she got me um, the uh, she got me a Dutch Harry Potter, which is just incredible. I add to my collection. Really thrilled about that. Um, so shouts to you, Paula. I love that. Um, otherwise, yeah, I just want to say thanks to, to the larger Potter community. Um, again, I'm not really one for birthdays, but... Uh, I appreciate all the well wishes, nevertheless. I think that's it. All right. Can we wrap so I can go make myself some lunch? We can wrap. All right. This is a special app. We'll see you all on Thursday.